morning, everyone. Thank you for having me. I'm grateful for your pastor's friendship and his invitation to, to be here today. Uh, I can confirm that I do have a dog whose name is COVID. <laughs> I feel like there's a little bit of backstory necessary so you don't think I'm insane for doing that. I have four kids and uh, three are grown, one's still at home. But when COVID hit, the my kids who were, I had kids in college and uh, all kinds of different places. And as many of you know, when all that happened, especially in Kentucky, things were really shut down for quite a long time. So my children lost their jobs and college went online. And all of a sudden, our family of six with three of them who are 18 or older, all of a sudden, uh, we're all together in the house all of a sudden. And we realized we probably need to figure out how to do something so we don't kill each other. Uh, forever long this goes and we said let's get a dog so that was our solution <laughs> so yeah so we probably can relate to what the, how we chose to cope with during that time uh, anyways the, we got the dog in for the first time in our family history everybody agreed on the name immediately and then I said really okay well we're all in agreement I guess that's what we're supposed to call it the dog and this dog is beloved as you can imagine our home but that's how COVID got his name, and yes, we do walk outside and call him, and neighbors just know by now, but at first it was kind of strange for them. Why are they shouting COVID? What is this pandemic doing to those people? So, I have come today to want to remind you of something simple and yet profound, and that I believe applies to everyone in this room, and that is, I want to remind you that regardless of who you are, what you've done, where you come from, if you are in Christ, that you are loved by God more than you can imagine. And that God is for you in your life more than you realize. And I want to remind us of that because I believe that is what gives us the hope in the midst of whatever we might face in our lives today. And so if you take the Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8, that's where I'd like to spend our time for us to look at this together. Romans chapter 8. As you're turning there, I, I would like to just give a little bit of background as we're jumping into the book of, of Romans. And the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans, it's a magnificent letter to the Roman church. And it is arguably the most detailed and clear description of what is the good news of Jesus. What is the gospel that ultimately saves us through faith in Christ? And as you start, it's, a, it's an argument, almost like a, a skilled lawyer writing this and making an argument for what is the gospel, what is the good news of Jesus, how are we saved from our sins, forgiven and given, and given eternal life. And as this letter starts, we see Romans 1 and following that, that God is God, he's holy and righteous, and yet we are sinners and we've separated ourselves from God. We can't, as I already mentioned today, we, we can't save ourselves. And so the Apostle Paul wrote, writes to this church made up of both Jews and Gentiles, and he lets them know on, on how they find salvation in Christ, despite the fact that they are sinners and separated from God and cannot save themselves. And when you get to the end of Romans chapter 7 in the midst of this argument, and you really do feel the weight of our fallenness in this world, the weight of the fact that we're born into sin 
And we are sinners and we cannot save ourselves. And the wages of sin, we're told, is, is death. And yet Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is a turning point there that is a really encouraging and glorious turn that we look at. In Romans chapter 8, that chapter, if you're unfamiliar with that, go home and read the whole chapter this afternoon. It is a, a magnificent chapter to read, and it shows the turn that the book of Romans takes. And it reveals to us specifically on how God loves sinners deeply and how much God loves sinners. So we're going to look at the middle of Romans chapter 8, but before we do that, I want to remind you of what the bookends of Romans 8 is. It helps us understand what's in the middle of Romans chapter 8. So I want you to notice in verse 1, it says that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Think about what that means as a sinner against God, that somehow Christ has fully satisfied the payment and the debt for sin, that a sinner can have no condemnation before God because of what Christ has done. He starts in chapter 8, verse 1 with this, there is no condemnation. Regardless of who you are, where you come from, what you've done, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And the end of the chapter ends with, and nothing, there's even a list, just to make sure you know there's absolutely nothing that can separate you and I from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's the bookend of Romans 8. The love of God that is captured based on what Christ has done. And so I want to walk through chapter 8 briefly and just give you some high points that leads us to the few verses that we're going to actually look at this morning. So Romans 8.1 mentioned there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But look at verse 9 and verse 8. That the Spirit of God dwells in those who are in Christ. Verse 14, we are adopted as sons and daughters of God in Christ. We're actually fellow heirs. Look at verse 17. We're fellow heirs with Christ. You know what that means to be an heir? It means that we will receive the inheritance that is only due to the Son who's worthy of it. But if we're in Christ, we actually get that full inheritance that Christ gets. We're also told here in Romans 8 that this world is not as it should be. So there is suffering and there's pain in this world. And that's where we get into the middle of Romans 8 and what we're going to look at in particular. Despite the fact that God loves us more than we can imagine, nothing separates us from it. And there were all these things in Christ where sons and daughters of God were adopted into his family were heirs with Christ. If you look at verses 22 and 23, it says creation groans. It uses that word groans. It, it says that, that we groan as well. The groans come from the pain and suffering of this world. And we all know that that exists in this fallen world as well. So there's an amazing paradox that Paul is capturing in Romans 8. And that though God loves us and we are secure in Christ, we will suffer and experience loss and pain in this world. And somehow, we have to figure out how to walk through that pain and suffering in this world. And it is the love of God in Christ that sustains us through it, that gives us purpose and hope in it. And that's what leads to what we're going to look at 
this morning, particularly a little bit closer in these, these verses. So find verse 26 through 30. <clears throat> Excuse me, 26 through 30, and that's what I'm going to read for our passage that we're going to look at today. Romans 8, find verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, would you come in the power of your spirit, remind us of your great love for us, and how you even demonstrate that to us in our suffering and pain. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There are two main implications I want to point to in this passage for us that show us God's deep, great love for sinners. Two implications. If you're taking notes, you can actually find those in your bulletin on the back there. The first implication of God's deep love for sinners we find here is that God allows the Spirit to speak for us. God allows the Spirit to speak for us. This time last year, I was in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I was speaking at a conference there, a pastor's conference there. And I, I spoke several times, but every time I, had, I spoke publicly, I had a translator translating into Portuguese for me. Now, some of you maybe have, have done this before, had a translator somewhere, you've seen this done. And I want you to know, as, as a speaker, it is something different that you really have to get used to in the rhythm of things. Because you have to say a complete thought and then stop. Let the translator translate, and then you keep going. You don't just to keep, get to keep talking. And once you get into a rhythm, I find that you, you get used to it. But it takes, it takes some adjusting. It especially takes adjusting with the people you're talking to because you say something and then there's just blank stares from everybody until the guy next to you talks and they go, you know, oh, okay. And it's just, you have to get used to the, it's almost like you're preaching in a delay constantly. Paul is saying here that there's a paradigm for the Christian life in what we just read, particularly that when life is hard, it says that, that we groan while we eagerly await God to fulfill all his promises. That's the paradox of life. That we groan and yet we're waiting eagerly for everything to be made right. So Paul doesn't just establish here, if you look in this passage, that groaning is a necessary part of the Christian life. That's just a few verses back in verse 23. But that God shows his love for us by providing a translator for our groanings. And that is the Holy Spirit. Some of you probably heard, we shouldn't groan. Don't groan. Don't complain. That probably come out of most of our mouths at one point or another. 
But I want you to see here that there's actually a, a groaning that is appropriate and even good in the Christian life. Because sometimes the pain is so great that all we can do is groan. And that's what Paul's talking about here. When we groan over immense pain, even if we're groaning with someone who loves us and is compassionate towards us in our groaning, that doesn't mean they know how to interpret your groanings. So even when we don't have the words to express the things we're going, that are going on in our life because of the pain and the hardship, what Paul is saying to this God, he hears us in that. When someone else can't understand why you're groaning and what's the groaning about, God is saying, I perfectly hear your groans because the Holy Spirit translates perfectly what those groans out of your soul mean. And it's one of the reasons that God shows his love to us. So I want you to notice from this passage, look at verse 26, that, that God hears our groanings. Verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit, sorry, let me find it. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray or as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit understands and interprets our groanings, and then God hears us and understands our groanings, even the groans that are too deep for words. You ever been in such pain you just don't even know how to get the words out to God? I just don't even know how to say what I feel in this moment. And what Paul is saying is sometimes when we can't speak, maybe we just groan and God understands perfectly the groans of our of our souls and our pains. And here's the key. He shows his love by not just saying he will hear our groans. He welcomes them. We're told don't, don't groan and complain. Well, there's, certainly there's moments to have that conversation, but we can often take hearing that and think God certainly doesn't want to hear me complain. God certainly doesn't want to hear my pain in the ways that I'm struggling in hurting and suffering. But we're told here that actually he welcomes our groans. He's provided the Holy Spirit that dwells in us to interpret what our groans are. Here's a second way we see that God hears us in these moments. That's he knows our hearts. He knows what's in our hearts. Verse 27, look at that with me. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So God knows us, He sees us, and He hears the Spirit groaning for us. The undeniable message here for those who are in Christ is that you are loved by God because God hears us. Let me personalize that for each of you who maybe came here today wondering if God ever hears you or knows that you're there. God hears you. He hears you, even in your pain and your groanings. When you try to go pray, you don't know what to say. He, he hears you. He knows exactly what you're feeling and experiencing. He welcomes those groans from you. He hears our groanings. He knows our hearts. Even groans that come over sin in our own life or injustices that have been 
done to us in some way or over the pain and suffering that you might be going through in your life that is so great that others cannot even understand what you're going through. God knows your pain and hears you. He's reflecting his love in us by just welcoming whatever we need to bring to him. By the way, this is the essence of what Paul is saying earlier in the chapter when he says that we can actually go to God as Abba, Father. Doesn't that make sense that if we can go to God and call him our Father, and he loves us like a loving Father, that he would want us to come to him and share whatever we need to share to him, to take whatever pain we've experienced in our life. So let me ask you this morning, what, what groans in your own soul were you brought with this morning that, that are deep in your soul that are, that are maybe too painful even for words to be able to express them? You know those groanings that you're afraid to make out loud because maybe somebody else around you won't know how to understand them. They won't know what they're about. That you may maybe have groanings that you don't want to reveal to anybody else because you might scare them because of what might come out of you. Paul tells us that God uniquely loves us and he demonstrates it in this way that that he welcomes our groans. He's provided the Spirit of God through our mediator, Jesus, to hear our groans, to translate exactly what we're going through and communicate them to God, and that's exactly how God knows what we're going through. Remember, this chapter opens with, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and it ends with, nothing separates you from the love of God in Christ. So now God is showing him when pain hits us and suffering comes into our lives, that God loves us by hearing us. Take your groans to him, your struggles, your suffering. I think so often we think that we don't want to bother God with those things or that, you know, I'm supposed to somehow have it all together and then, then I'll go to God in prayer, but, but he actually wants us just as we are to come to him and cry out to him. And he welcomes us that's the reason most of us don't realize how much God loves us. He, he wants us to come to him. He, he is for us. So go to him today with those groans. Know he hears you. He understands. He loves you in the midst of all of that. In fact, if you're here this morning and you don't follow Christ, this may sound like a strange idea to you. I want you to know that, that God loves sinners and all the things that Romans 8 talks about that we get in Christ are wonderful things and things to, to celebrate but they only come from being in Christ so if you do not know Christ then I would encourage you to, to go to him to realize that only through his life his death and his resurrection can you be forgiven of your sins find eternal life be transformed through in the, from the inside out to where the Spirit of God actually comes and dwells in you and changes you from the inside. And you receive forgiveness of your sins. Peace with God. That all comes through faith alone in Christ. I would encourage you to turn to Him today and receive all these benefits that Romans 8 talks about, including in hearing your groans and, and welcomes you in love. So God hears our groans. The Spirit speaks for us. He provides that for us. That's the first implication of God's 
love for us. Here's the second one. The second implication of God's great love for us is that God works all things for our good. God works all things for our good. Only the deep love of God could make such a promise to each one of us. Verse, let's look at verse 28 together. And we see this promise that many of us know well. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. There's a lot we can highlight in this verse, but there's two words that are particularly important in this verse I want to highlight for you. It is the two words of all things. Look at that in the verse, all things. God promises that he will use all things for our good. That is a stunning realization if you think about it, that God can somehow promise all things. I want you to know, I would never make a promise like that. I mean, talk about setting yourself up for failure. One, one extra thing or exception, and you have not fulfilled your promise. You know, I don't know about you, if I ever make a promise, I usually try to build in some, some places where I might not quite deliver. So there's some grace involved there. Why would God say all things here? Unless he really meant that it would be everything in our life works for our good that happens to us. I, I can't promise this to you. You can't promise this to anybody. Regardless of the, the intentions of your efforts. Only a God who rules on his throne over all things and only a God who loves us so deeply can promise this. So he stakes his character and his power and faithfulness on fulfilling this promise. And do you realize that a promise like this reveals to us that God not only loves us so deeply, but God is in control of all things on the throne. I take one of these away, he cannot fulfill his promise. I mean, if he didn't, if he, if he loved us just a little bit, he would never make a promise like this. Nobody would. But he can't make a promise like this if he's not sitting on the throne ruling over everything. If he loves us more than we can imagine, but he cannot control everything that happens in the world, he cannot make a promise like this, can he? So it points to the rulership of God as well as his deep love for us that he would ever make a promise like this. It's also important to see that verse 28 is in the context of things not going real well, isn't it? A lot of times we, we quote Romans 8, 28 in the midst of, you know, maybe things going really well in our life. But the context is flowing out of what is he talking about? There's pain and suffering in our life that's so great that we can't even have words to describe it. We just have to groan. And it's out of that that flow of the verses that it goes into 820. He says, but despite that you're going to groan because of the suffering you're going to go through, God works all things for your good. Brings a weight to that promise, doesn't it? Because we're all tempted when we read verse 28 to say, yeah, not, not this thing. I messed up too big here. There's no way God is going to use that for good. I don't see in any way how this thing is going to be it's brought so much pain in my life. So it is a promise of all things. But what's important to see is it is not a promise for everyone. It is a promise for two qualifications of people. I should say a group of people and these two qualifications for that group. And you see it in verse 28. 
the first exception, the qualification for this amazing promise is it says, for those who love God. Verse 28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who, who love God. I can remember having conversations with non-Christians. I was a pastor for 25 years before I, I left to, uh, to lead practical shepherding full-time a couple years ago. And one of the things I found is in just casual conversations with, with non-Christians, they'd be talking to me. And of course, you know, they usually try to work something spiritual into it. They know they're talking to the pastor somehow. They usually came to talk to me about something. And at some point, that non-Christian would say to me, because most people have heard this verse in one way or another, well, they'd kind of make a passing come, well, you know, I, I but I know everything's going to work out for good. I know everything's going to work out for me. Now, that's tricky. That's probably not the best time to have a theological argument with them in that moment. But what I'm gripped by in that moment is he's, he's quoting something that actually is not his promise. He's not guaranteed that. It's not a promise for everyone. It's a promise to those who love God, those who know God, those who are in Christ, is, is what all of chapter 8 is talking about. So to, to receive this wonderful promise of all things work for our good, you first... It's got to be someone who, who loves God. The second qualification is in verse 28. And this is those called according to this purpose. This promise is for the same person, in other words, that is being described all throughout Romans chapter 8. It's the one who, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. The Spirit dwells in them. The Spirit intercedes for their groaning. They're adopted as, as children of God. They're fellow heirs with Christ. That's leading all to this verse. And the promise that's given in Romans 8, 28 is to those who are called according to his purpose. What is that purpose? Well, we find it in the next two verses. Look there with me. It's important to see how much Romans 8, 28 flows into verses 29 and 30. Let's look at those together. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those who love God and are called according to his purpose, they are clearly, deeply, uniquely, and specifically loved by God. And out of that love, God has this glorious purpose, this progression. Verses 29 and 30 show a progression that eventually leads to glorification, eternal life, forever being with Christ. And that is all secured, foreknowledge, predestined, called, justified, glorified. It's all secured by the blood of Christ. So God has this unshakable plan, and it's driven by an unchanging love that cannot be thwarted which is how God is able to promise that all things will work for our good. This passage is, also has a, a particularly personal meaning to me. Because like many of you, you probably have testimonies of your life where you groaned. The pain was so great that you didn't have any other way to articulate well, to God what was going on, so you just groaned. And I have, 
I have done my share of groaning, as I'm sure many of you have done as well. As I mentioned, I was a, I was a pastor for 25 years. I did eight years of associate pastor work, and then I went, as, as Pastor Steve mentioned, to be the pastor of Auburndale Baptist Church, which is in the south end of Louisville, Kentucky. And I was there for 17 years. And I was told when I went to this church, it would be a rough place. But I didn't realize how rough a place it was actually going to be. In my first five years at the church, there were three different movements to get me fired. In the first five years of the church, there were a couple different instances of, of threats of violence against me. My name was slandered through all the, the, the community, some by the people on the committee that had actually hired me. And at the end of those five years, I had developed, at the ripe age of 34 years old, I had developed some health issues that got pretty scary that the docs eventually diagnosed as a result of the accumulated stress that I had endured those five years at the church. My body was showing signs of physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual breakdown. And in some of my darkest moments, the best way to describe what I was enduring in those first five years is, is I groaned. I didn't know how to understand at all what was happening. I didn't have a category to understand. I mean, I'm going to pastor a church. I'm trying to follow the call of God on my life to go pastor a church. And so I asked God in my darkest moments all the questions you would expect me to, to ask. I mean, did, did God send me here and then abandon me? Was I being punished? I had I done something wrong? I mean, I'm asking myself, do I have hidden sin in my life that I'm being punished for and that I don't know what's going on? And there was a time where I even wondered if this was going to just break me. Especially when my physical health started to, to have some scary things happen. And I want you to know that in my darkest moments of those five years, I found two precious truths that were particularly helpful to my soul that I clung to in the moments when I had no idea what to cling to. And these two truths are the ones that are highlighted specifically in Romans 8, 26 to 30. And that is these two truths that God, he hears my groans of pain and cares. He hears them. And the second one, that somehow, some way, God was going to use all this for my good. Now, when I'm in the middle of it, I have no idea how that's happening. And I didn't have much faith to believe that was actually possible. But I did cling to those truths as promises that God indeed hear my groans of pain and he will work all things for my good. Something was happening in those five years though that, that I saw some but I did not realize the full extent. And that is that, that God was doing two things through those first five years of my ministry. He was building his church there in a way that I, I couldn't see as well. There's a second thing going on that I was completely oblivious to. He was preparing me for a future ministry. He was preparing me for a future ministry that I had no idea that he was preparing me for. One of the things that started going on in our church, we had a few young guys that showed up at the church who were feeling a call into the ministry. And so I started training some of these guys for ministry, just taking them you know, to the hospitals and visit people and the funerals and going to visit widows. And I'd take them with me, just doing the work of a pastor and taking these guys with me and then I eventually wrote some stuff down for them uh, about these things and 
Uh, it turned into a, a book, and then we started a blog trying to have conversations about practical ministry that came out of that, and we called it Practical Shepherding. That's where the name of the ministry came out of. So it was in the middle of this mess of a church situation that, that almost broke me personally. It was in the middle of all that that God birthed this ministry that I lead now. And after five hard, long, grueling years, God somehow turned the ship. And the church in year six began to just flourish after that. It was almost like God specifically ordained those five years for me. So when I talk about these things, I, I don't say God made the best of it. No, I, I look at that in those five years he had for me to make me the man I was supposed to be, to, make, to shape me into the pastor he was calling me to be, and to shape our church the way that he wanted our church to be through all those times. And after those five years in year six, when I said, say flourish, the, the church started seeing conversions to Christ, and baptizing people. We saw generation, different generations coming into the church, from newborns to widows over 100 years old in the church. But here's one of the things that I saw that, that God was doing that I could not see. There were about four or five families that were the ones that were after me in those early years and trying to get me fired and leading those charges. What happened the next five years after that? Because I stayed and many of them stayed at the church. God redeemed the relationships of many of those people with me who were trying to get me fired in the first five years. To where they became some of the dearest people in the whole church to me and became some of my biggest supporters that I have. Now, can we agree that only God's the one that can do something? Something that I could never imagine was going to happen when I'm in the middle of it, groaning, trying to trust that promise that somehow he's going to use all of this for our good. And I stayed at the church for 17 years, and God did some amazing things in our church. And I thank God for it. When I left, when I transitioned two years ago, some of the dearest people and the hardest people to leave were some of those people who were going after me in those first five years. I can tell a quick story on one example. Betty, who's now in her mid-90s now, still, still alive, uh, Betty was, uh, she would sit on the second row in the front, and she, we had this routine the first couple of years that she would find me at the end of the service and, and tell me two things. She'd tell me she hated my preaching and why, which was, which was kind of refreshing. Because, you know, if somebody hates your preaching, they might tell somebody else, but they're not coming to you. Well, she came to me and said, I hate your preaching. And then she'd tell me specifically why. And I want you to know, and this was our routine. For two first couple of years, she'd come to the back, you know, the doors when I'm greeting people, and she'd come find me. And that was our routine. And I want you to know, I did what every wise 29-year-old pastor would do in that moment. I dismissed everything she said to me. I mean, you know, she's an 80-year-old widow. What does she know about preaching? I told myself. So I just dismissed, and I just let her come say what she needed to say. Well, for the next probably eight years, 
I, I really did try to grow as a preacher. I mean, I knew I needed to grow as, in my preaching. So I did all kinds of things to do that from seeking help and advice, reading books, changing my prep, really wanted to become a good and effective preacher. And about 10 years in, I, it's like I kind of hit a stride and the, the fruit of the preaching ministry in our church really took notice that there was clear fruit that was coming from it. And I was all, we were all excited about that. And all of a sudden it dawned on me that I had changed exactly what Betty had told me had changed 10 years before. Which, by the way, she loves it anytime she hears I tell that story anywhere. I'll go back. She'll have to tell our stories like I did. Everybody knows. Everybody knows what you said. Back. Our routine changed, though, after several years. For the last four or five years I was there, we became very close. She became one of the dearest people in the whole church to me. And she suffered more than anybody had known. She buried her husband, three or four kids. In the last year I was there, she had a knee and hip replacement surgery all during COVID. So she had suffered a lot. In the last several years, the routine with her, she would come to the back of the church to greet me like she did in the early years. But it was an entirely different exchange. She came to me. She usually had tears in her eyes. And she would tell me specifically how God's word was helpful to her in the midst of all her suffering. And then she did this every time. She'd give me a really big tight hug and she'd whisper in my ear, I think that's the best sermon we've ever preached. <laughs> Which we all know is a big fat lie. <laughs> but I knew exactly what she was trying to say to me in that moment. And she became one of the hardest people to say goodbye to when I left. Did God somehow use for good? That seemingly situation that was impossible for me to see how God used it for good. He not only shaped me and our church from it, but he had plans to launch this ministry I now lead. And do you know what arguably makes me be able to be effective in caring for hurting pastors in the ministry? What I went through those first five years. Guys come to me because they know the story and they say, he'll get it. He understands what I'm going through, whatever hard situation it is. So isn't that, isn't that amazing that God not only uses it for our good, he specifically used the greatest suffering and hardship through that time as the fuel that makes me be fruitful now in this ministry he's called me to. And many of you know that that's how this works in your life as well, isn't it, don't you? I mean, we know that this is how the promise of Romans 8, 28 works. God not only uses it for our good, even though we may not see it in the moment, we usually don't. And sometimes maybe we don't see how it is used for our good. But the promise is still all things. And I want you to know, even if you can't see it, that promise is true for you if you are in Christ today. And, I, and to have and ask God for the faith to believe it when all you can do is groan and you don't know how this pain and suffering that you're in is going to work in that way. But many of you already know that this promise is true in your life, don't you? Because I bet if we had a time of testimony, some of you could share some of the most painful things that's happened in your life. That God has turned around and used that suffering in your life to make you the most empathetic person towards somebody who suffers like you. And that's how God uses you in a unique way. There's all kinds of ways God can, in his infinite wisdom and power, use your suffering, your groans for your good. 
And the fact that he promises to do that is a reflection of his deep love for us that shows he loves us more than we can imagine or see. But God is for us and loves us. And this glorious promise that he gives here is for everybody who is in Christ. So friends, I want to encourage you to trust him today with whatever you're faced. Remember his love for you is greater than you can imagine. He is for you in ways that you cannot even realize. And his promise reminds us of that. So God loves you and I. And the evidence of that is that he's provided a translator Holy Spirit to let God know exactly what we are facing and feeling. And then he promises whatever you're happening in your life that he works all things for our good. And may God give each of us the grace to trust him in the midst of all the suffering and difficulty that we face. So let me take a moment and pray for each of you. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that our suffering in this world is not in vain. None of it is. But you use it to shape us, to burn away the chaff, to mold and shape us into the image of Christ and to make us who you want us to be. But Lord, we don't like to suffer. We don't like to feel pain. We don't like to feel weak. So Lord, help us to cry out to you and when we don't have the words, help us to know you welcome our groans. And that the Spirit specifically translates those groans. And Lord, with those who are sitting here wondering, even trying to imagine how you would use your, their situation for their good, I pray, Lord, you would just give them an ember of faith to trust you and to wait patiently for how that might come. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name.